I've had an awful weekend. And awful actually means filled with awe, which is actually an amazing thing. In fact, this word awful used to be used to describe God, that he, when we approach him, he is full of awe, and that we are full of awe when we see him. So today we're going to talk about words and the importance of words. Um, But before we get to that, I just wanted to remind you that I've been telling you about Greg and my relationship and telling you that the first 10 years were really rough for us. And you're probably wondering, well, how was the 11th year and how did that get better? Well, one of the things that really helped our marriage to turn around was that we started training for the Twin Cities Marathon. I know you're probably wondering, how does that, like, how does that bond two people? But what would happen is that every Saturday morning, we would have to get up and do our long run. And the long run could be, you know, anywhere from 10 miles to, by the time we were getting closer, 20 miles and 21 miles. One weekend, I would be like, I am not getting out of bed. And then Greg would have to pull the covers off and literally drag me out of bed, and then we would go running. Usually the next weekend, he would be the one who wouldn't want to get up. Then I would have to, if he was complaining and didn't want to get up, then I would have to, like, get up and say, okay, come on, we got to go. I would pull the covers off of him, which was harder, because he's hanging on tighter. And then I would drag him out of bed, and we would go running. And sure enough, because both of us were in it together, we did finish the Twin Cities Marathon. But we couldn't have done it without each other, because there were days where I just wanted to give up. Um, And there were days where Greg wanted to give up. And we needed each other to really spur the other one on to reach the goal that, that we had set for ourselves. Well, King Solomon, he keeps showing up in my illustrations, but King Solomon knew that it's not good for a person to be alone. And so in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9 through 11, he wrote these words. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down or doesn't want to get up, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls down, who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, especially in Minnesota, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? wise words from the wisest man that ever lived. But he wasn't the first person to notice that it's not good for a person, a human being, to be alone. God, who is the creator of everything, including human beings, he was the first one to say that it's not good for a human being to be alone. So together we're going to look at Genesis 2, verse 7 and 8, and then jumping to verse 15 through 25 together to look at the story of what happened when God first created human beings. Okay? So reading together, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, 
and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But before God makes this suitable helper for the man, God brings all the animals that he had created to the man. In verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sea, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. I wish he had named the platypus something else, but that was the name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And this is the first time in the story that we find out that the man's name is Adam, which was a name that God had given to him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This now, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So before we get deeper into the story, let's take time to pray. I know I need it because I want to share with you not only what the Word says, but I need to be led to share as much of how I can help Greg as possible, and I don't know what to share. So pray with me that God would lead us in this. God, your word says that you are the one who created us and you have a purpose. And we confess that too often we, we have our own ideas. So Lord, I ask that you would open my mouth. Lord, that you would speak through me, that I would diminish and that you would increase. And Lord, that these words would be yours, not mine. Father, we pray that all your words of Scripture would not return to you void, but that it would accomplish what you need it to do. So I pray that this morning, Father. I pray with vulnerability that you would, um, you would inspire and that you would give me the courage to share truthfully from my heart, relying solely on your word. I thank you. I bless these people in your name. Amen. So I just came back from a retreat um, leading some women, and I tested this sermon on them. We had lots of laughter. 
because they asked lots of questions about the things I, I said. So feel free to laugh with me so I'll feel like, like um, you're tracking along, okay? All right, so some scholars have hypothesized that God deliberately had Adam look at all the animals and name them because he wanted Adam to appreciate the woman that God was about to create for him. So that Adam would notice what Eve, this new woman, was going to be like, especially in contrast to the animals. Um, because notice that after all the animals went by, the Bible again then says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So, what kind of helper did God intend this woman that he was going to create uh, to be with the man? What was it about Adam being alone that wasn't good? Because I often think, I mean, if Adam uh, had, you know, I'm sure one of the wild animals was a wolf who eventually will become man's best friend, the dog. So, I mean, isn't that a good enough companion for Adam that he could have this almost dog following him around the garden? Uh, clearly, God said, no, that's not good enough. If Adam needed conversation, God regularly came into the garden and walked with Adam and talked to him. So wouldn't that have been good enough of a, a conversation partner for Adam? And yet we see that God said it was not good for Adam to be alone. Even though Adam was in this beautiful garden with all these animals and had deep fellowship with God, it was not good for him to be in this solitary state. So whether Adam knew it or not, God knew that Adam needed someone by his side. Not someone or something that was inferior to him like the animals were. And not someone who was so far superior than he is, who was God. But he needed somebody like him by his side. So instead of taking another lump of clay, which is what God did to make the animals and to make Adam, God actually made the woman out of a rib or out of the side of the man. This taking from the side, people have said, have speculated, that it means that she's supposed to be by his side, not at his feet, because God didn't take a little toe and make her out of that, or uh, didn't pluck one of his hair to make her so that she would be above him, but from his side to be next to him. So what kind of helper was this new creature supposed to be? If ever there was a word that was misunderstood or mistranslated or that was lost in translation, it would be this word helper. So we're going to take some time today to actually look at 
what the Hebrew word for helper is. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I can't even pronounce the words. But I've done a lot of research, reading people who understand the language and have tried to understand what these words mean. So we're going to look at this word helper. Some translations of our Bible use the word companion instead of helper. Others would use the word partner. But most of the current translations actually use the word helper. Now, to our modern ears, the word helper, um, it sounds more like someone who is kind of a, just a lesser, lowly assistant. This is my helper, right? Or someone who's, who's at least subordinate to you. Um, you know, we often tell little children when they're helping their mom and dad, isn't that sweet? You're such a cute little helper. And basically we're saying, you kind of get in their way, but at least your parents can still get their, you know, what they need done done. And that's kind of how we've come to hear the word helper. And I know some of us women, when we hear, you know, you need to be a suitable helper to your husband, we're probably like, Ugh, helper, what is that? So let's look at what the Hebrew word means, okay? And in order to do that, oftentimes, in order to understand a word, you have to look at how it's used in other areas in the Bible. To just take a translation in one verse is difficult to do. But if we look at it in multiple contexts, we have a better idea of how the, the original writer and the original hearers of the word understood it. Okay, so this word, this Hebrew word for helper or help, actually was used 17 times in the Old Testament to describe God. So let's look at some of these together. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 29, it says, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. In another place, Psalm 33, verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. In Psalm 70, verse 5, yet I am poor and needy. Come quickly to, come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. And just one more, or another one here is in Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2. One of the first Bible verses I learned as a kid. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then God himself says in Hosea 13, verse 9, You are destroyed, O Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. So the Hebrew word for help or helper is azer, E-Z-E-R. And it's a combination of two other words that are put together. And these two other words are strength and power. And it's used several times uh, in the Old Testament to also describe military prowess. 
So like in Psalm 89, verse 17, the Lord says, I have bestowed strength, or azer, on a warrior. I have exalted a young man among the people. So you get this sense that the word help, helper, is not a wimpy term. In fact, the verb form to help, this word form has been translated or means to bring relief in times of hardship or distress, to save from danger, to deliver from death. I mean, these are important verbs, important things to do, important actions, very powerful actions. So clearly this helper that God was designing for Adam was not just someone who lends a little helping hand, hands him the wrench when he needs it. No, this is someone who is powerful enough to not only provide what the man needed, but she is strong enough to render crucial, and I might even say, life-protecting aid. But, lest you think that that means that her role is superior to him, that she's like, wow, she's going to rescue him. She's stronger than he is. The Bible uses an adjective to modify this helper, to describe what kind of helper she's going to be. And that word we've translated in the New International Version that we read today as a suitable helper. But again, there's been much lost in translation in this word translated suitable. Other translations use the word corresponding to, or comparable to, or fit for. So in what sense is this woman suitable or fit for the man? The Hebrew word here is the word neged. K-E-N-E-G-D-O, but pronounced neged. And it's only used twice in the Bible, and both times they're right here in Genesis to describe what kind of helper she is supposed to be. And because of that, we have a little harder time figuring out what this word really means, because it's only used here. The Hebrew word literally means in front of. God is going to create this helper who is in front of or face-to-face -face with Adam. And most people agree that this would mean then that she is similar to him, same as he is, like he is, or corresponding to him. Our David Friedman, who is the director of the Religious Studies program at the University of California at Davis, who also majored in the um, Semitic languages, so a scholar in these ancient languages, he wrote an article entitled, Woman, a Power Equal to Man. And this is what he said. I believe the customary translation of these two words 
despite its near universal uh, adoption, is wrong. That is not what the words are intended to convey, and he's referring back to the suitable helper. They should be translated instead to mean approximately a power equal to man. That is, when God concluded that he would create another creature so that man would not be alone, he decided to make a power equal to him, someone whose strength was equal to the man's. Woman was not intended to be merely man's helper. She was to be instead his partner. When God creates Eve from Adam's rib, his intent is that she will be, unlike the animals, a power or strength equal to him. So this idea, uh, R. David Friedman says that the word azer should be translated power or strength. And the word neged should be translated equal to. So put it together, it's an, a power that is equal to the man. She's not inferior to him. She's not superior to him. She's equal to him. And only then can she provide what he needs that the animals couldn't give him and what God says he can't even give him, interestingly enough. And when God brought the woman to the man, he immediately recognized that this new creature was similar to him. With a little bit of license, here's how I would say what Adam said. Finally, right? Finally, you got it right, God, right? Because he says, this now is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The animals were not, but this now, finally. Adam recognized that none of them, none of the animals was like him. But this creature is like him. Okay, so what, what is this? What is this purpose of this power equal to the man? What's her role? What did man not have when the woman wasn't there? That's important for us to understand. And what I'm going to say now is talking about the marriage relationship a wife and a husband, but this also has to do with why God created women. So whether you're single uh, or married or widowed or whatever your state is, I think this still talks about our role as women in the world in connection with the men around us. Okay. Um, so some of you might agree with this saying, when God finished the creation of Adam, he stepped back, scratched his head, and said, hmm, I can do better than this. Others of you might agree with this other saying instead. In the beginning, God created the earth and rested. Then God created man and rested. Then God created woman. Since then, neither God nor man has rested. So let's look at 
why did God create this other human to be with the first human? From Genesis 1 and 2, I see three things that Adam, the man, needed. Three things that he needed. First, he needed a partner in his God-given tasks. He needed a partner in his God-given tasks. In Genesis 1, which is the first telling of the creation story, we read the story in Genesis 2, but in Genesis 1, we learn that God created human beings, both male and female, in God's image. And from verse 28, uh, we learn that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This blessing that God gave them to be fruitful and increase, he gave to both of them. And this is something that Adam can't do by himself. He needs a partner who will procreate with him. And that's how they're going to multiply and fill the earth. And then this blessing to subdue or, or work the earth and then to rule over all the creation that God had created, the birds and the fish and the animals, this command to rule was given to both of them. And as noted earlier in King Solomon's uh, writing in Ecclesiastes, two have a better return for their labor. So Adam needed a partner who could help him do the work that God had given to him. Uh, and that's very important because we women like to tell our husbands how to do the work. Not necessarily do it with him, but tell him how to do it better. And the idea is that we're supposed to be by his side, working with him, fulfilling what God has called both of them to do. Um, I know that in my own marriage, the saddest times for me or when I'm really working hard with Greg and I don't think he appreciates it. Because I feel the most like, wow, I'm, I'm your partner. I'm, I'm like, we're in this together. And I'm like, do you even see what I'm doing? And, and then that leads me to say, can I tell you what to do then, right? Um, but it, it's almost like it's something in me that says, please notice that I am contributing to this call that God has given both of us to do. And so I certainly appreciate um, Greg, Greg's love language is words of affirmation, so he's constantly affirming me in case you get the wrong idea. Um, but it's when I tell him what and how to do things that then I don't get the affirmation back. So I need to learn how to be his partner, not his boss. Okay. So God created power equal to Adam so that he would have a true partner to fulfill God, the God-given tasks. A second thing I see in these verses is that Adam, the man, he needed a lover in his life. He needed a lover. What must Adam have thought when he kept seeing all these animals parading in front of him, and maybe some of them came in pairs. 
I don't know what he was thinking. We won't speculate. But we do know that when, the, when God parades Eve, the woman in front of Adam, he's like, yes. And it's not just a yes, she looks like me or she's similar to me. Uh, we know that he had a strong emotional reaction to her because he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, which is a Hebrew, Hebrew term for this is a relative of mine. This is a kinsperson that is close to me. And immediately after Adam says, you know, I'm going to call her woman, then the Bible tells us that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. It's as if Adam recognized, and I don't know who told Adam that I took your rib and here she is, but he recognized that she was part of him. And this oneness is more like a rejoining of what was originally part of Adam has now become part of him again. So it's not a union of two people. It's almost a reunion. And the Apostle Paul kind of echoes this when he says, Husbands, love your wives the way you love your own body. Because guess what? She is part of your own body. She is part of you. And God created this woman for Adam, and she is the only legitimate place where he can express himself sexually and be sexually fulfilled. And for us as women, we, we are the only legitimate source of sexual gratification for our husbands. And we should take that role seriously. Because that's part of, part of the beauty of this oneness that God has created us for. And it is a beautiful part of their intimate relationship uh, where Adam and Eve were physically naked and emotionally open with each other, and they were not ashamed. And, and that's the idea of this being loved by someone and loving them in a way without restraints. And that is the oneness marriage. So God created this woman because Adam, it wasn't good for him to be alone. He needed a lover in his life. And the third thing that I see that God created um, this woman for this man is that he needed an ally in his faith. He needed an ally in his faith. In Genesis 2, which is what we read earlier, the order in which the events unfold, the narrator deliberately chooses to put uh, the sequence together this way. So first, God creates the man. Next, he puts the man in the garden to work it, to take care of it. Once he puts him in there, God gives the man a command. He says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then immediately, 
in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, or as Friedman would say, a power equal to him. Now, why didn't God say that immediately after he put the man in the garden to work the garden? That he should have said, you know, it's not good for him to be alone. Instead, the story tells us God puts him in there, then God tells him, don't eat from that tree, and then God says, it's not good for him to be alone. So we might wonder if God was like, I think he needs somebody to help him obey me. Because he might forget. Wives, no snickering. He might forget what I told him. Or he, he, you know, in a weak moment, he might. And so he needs an ally in his faith, in his walk, in his obedience to God. Could it be that one way that we as women, as wives, created with equal equality with our husbands, that we could really help him in his faith, in his walk? Might he need the support and encouragement of a partner who knows God's word, who loves God, who fears God, and that in our own reverence of God, that we could encourage his faith and that together we could obey God. Sadly, we find in the next chapter in Genesis 3 that it was the woman who was deceived by the crafty serpent. And it was actually she who first took the fruit from the tree that God said, don't eat from that tree. And she was the one who gave it to her husband who was with her. And then they both ate. She ate and then he ate. I don't know about you, but if you're going to be a crafty enemy, you would want to take down the person who would try to dissuade the other person. Right? So I kind of wonder if Satan was like, the serpent was like, if I can get Eve to eat, because she's supposed to be his ally, and she's supposed to support him and help him, if I could get her to fall, she can probably get him to fall. Because if I go directly to him, he might say yes or no, but she might say no to him too. Well, I don't know. I would, no. Um, Regardless, she failed in that role of helping Adam to remember God's, God's words, God's commands. Um, and we don't have time today to talk about what happened, the fall, and the consequences of it. But I know that we, we are, in my own marriage, I'm living with the consequence of that disobedience because I disobey my own life. But one of the things that happened because they disobeyed God was that God said to the woman, you are going to want, you're going to desire your husband, 
And whether that's emotionally desire him or you're going to desire to control him, and yet he's going to be the one who's going to rule over you. I think the man got cursed there too. To have to rule over her, and her desire will be to rule over him. And I, I struggle with that every day. Driving here to church, I struggle with that. That desire to tell him what to do and to be in control of him. Um, and that gets played out. But what if instead my role was to pray for him and encourage him and help him as he is serving God and I'm serving God next to him? How different that would be. I don't think that because of the fall we have to live in that state of not knowing how to truly be um, partners, lovers, allies. Um, there is a picture of a woman who is able to do this. She has no name, and she's often referred to as just the Proverbs 31 woman. And this weekend, when I brought her up, there were many groans in the room of women. We all have a love-hate relationship with her, depending on where we are in this journey of learning to be who God created us to be as women. Um, but she inspires both dismay, like how can she do that, and inspiration, like help me to do that. Okay. So today let me, let's, let me give you a glimpse of what it looks like to be a power equal to your husband. And we're not going to read all of it because it's a pretty long um, passage, but we're going to look at Proverbs 31, verse 10 through 12, and then we'll skip to the end, verse 28 through 31. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. We'll just Take a little pause here, and wives, let's think about that. Can your husband say this of you, that he has full confidence in you and that he lacks nothing of value? And it's, it's verse 12 where most of us women are going to groan. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. I'm lucky if on any given day it's a 50-50. But all the days of her life, she brings him good and not harm. How is she able to do this? If you read through the, the intervening verses, she is a real estate agent. She's wheeling and dealing businesses. She is... Um, she's a homemaker with amazing organizational skills. She is generous and wise, and she makes me tired just thinking about it. And yet, I wish I could do half of that. But this is what happens. In verse 28, we read, Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. 
And then the writer tells us, charm is, dece is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Women, our ability to fulfill that role that God created the woman for, to be a partner, to be a lover, to be a spiritual ally. We can only do that if we fear God. This word fear means to revere, to respect in awe. We can only fulfill our role to be a suitable helper, a power equal to the man to be his partner, his lover, and his spiritual ally if we fear the Lord. And I believe that the promise of Jesus' death and resurrection is that we don't have to live in the curse, but we can be redeemed to what God had created us to be by his side as a power equal to the man, to partner with him in his tasks, ministry that God had given to him, to be uh, his lover and to be his ally in his obedience to God. Let's pray together. God, you are infinitely wise. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. So we can only begin to scratch the surface of the beauty of what you have done in creating us male and female and bringing us together in holy matrimony or marriage. Lord, this is your design. Help each of us who are married to discover and appreciate and embrace what you have given to us in marriage. I pray, Father, for the single men and women, the young ladies and young men, Lord, that you would help them to understand that it is not just in marriage, but it is in, in ministry, in partnership, that we can, together as male and female, uh, do your work that you have left for us. So I thank you for this time, Father. I pray that all the words that are from you would take in people's hearts and would bear fruit in their lives. And whatever, Lord, is not from you, I pray that you would just take away from our memories. So I thank you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.